0: Well, our sermon text uh, this morning is a, it's a rather long one. Um, I thought about doing just Acts 2 verses 1 to 13 as it's more manageable, but uh, I want to kind of do what I didn't do when we preached through Acts. I took it kind of a bit at a time years ago. It's been quite a while now since I preached through it, but I thought it would be helpful for Pentecost Sunday to spend some time looking at the, the whole chapter. I won't be able to go through it every little bit by every little bit, obviously, for the sake of time. But uh, we're going to read Acts two verses one to forty-seven, the whole chapter. If you have difficulty standing, don't don't feel the need to stand up uh, for the for the reading. But if you're able to do so, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word today. Acts chapter two verses one through forty-seven. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Luke writes: When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven and in this uh, this sound the multitude came together and and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that, that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the, with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, And wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. That I, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my tongue was glad and my, my tongue, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So those who received his word were baptized and those that were added, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This ends a reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's... Pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. We thank you that you give this to us, that we might know you better. We might be uh, drawn to faith in Christ for salvation in his name and built up in the faith. And we ask that you would do even what your text talks about here this morning, that you would fill us with your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Build us up in our most holy faith and convert the lost. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you, uh, you may or may not be familiar with the use of a liturgical calendar, so to speak, a liturgical calendar. Uh, we, we practice it. We've been practicing it in, at least in some ways for a while. What it does is it it basically highlights different edempt, uh, events in redemptive history at certain times uh, throughout the year. For example, a great many churches, even ourselves and many of our sister churches here in town, we celebrate christmas and easter some of you have joked to me that uh you know paul you call such people that only go to church those days holly bunnies you know the people that go twice a year the the christmas and easter crowd uh, another one that people come to is mothers day although that's not on the church calendar so to speak um, some churches kind of uh, we might think go overboard with it they seem to have a different sunday for everything you know every sunday of the year it's a different sunday uh, highlighting some kind of a thing others reject any use of a church calendar whatsoever they, they view it sometimes uh, I know pastors who will not they refuse to celebrate Christmas or Easter they refuse to acknowledge it in the church because they view that as somehow adding an additional Lord you know Holy Day other than the Lord's Day the only the only Holy Day we really observe is the Lord's Day every Sunday is the Lord's Day it's God's Holy Day and we don't we don't uh, uh, you know add Holy Days to the church calendar so to speak uh, but many within the Reformed tradition that we were a part of have made it our custom to observe a more simplified, uh, a more abbreviated liturgical calendar that highlights some of the most important events uh, and doctrines in the life of the church. And these are as follows. There's five of them. There's Christmas. There's Good Friday. There's Easter, Ascension Sunday, which was last Sunday, and today, uh, Pentecost Sunday. Now, why why those five things? Why do Reformed churches often highlight these five things in particular and set aside different Sundays or different days to observe them? What is Christmas about? What, is, what did Linus say, right? At Luke chapter 2. Uh, Christmas is about uh, remembering, calling to mind the incarnation and birth of Christ, our Savior. What is Good Friday about? Good Friday is the Friday right before Easter Sunday. Uh, Good Friday is in memory of the death of Christ on the cross for our, for our sins for our salvation. Easter, of course, is about the resurrection of Christ on the third day for our justification. Well, last Sunday was Ascension Sunday, if you were here. And the Ascension Sunday is the Sunday right after 40 days after the resurrection. It's the, it's the closest Sunday to the ascension of Christ, which Acts 1-3 says took place, what, 40 days after his resurrection from the dead. And last but not least is Pentecost Sunday, and that's in remembrance of what happens in our text, which happened 50 days after the resurrection, 50 days also after Passover. The word Pentecost, if you're not sure, if you've never heard this before, it means 50 or 50th. It's a hint at what day it is. It's 50 days after Passover, after the resurrection of Christ. And so observing this little, this simple church calendar uh, ensures that these cardinal events, these, these really important events and doctrines in the Christian faith, are brought to mind, taught, and even preached about on a regular basis, at least annually, if not if not more. Now, we should probably emphasize a good many of these things more often than that, but at least once a year these things get brought up to our attention. Now, of those five days, they're not, all, not all Sundays, Good Friday, is not a Sunday, but of those five things, the two that get the, the least airtime, so to speak, the two that are most neglected are Ascension and Pentecost, Nobody. They're kind of the forgotten. They're the redheaded stepchildren of the five of the five days uh, that we look at, um, and so they're also the most uh, likely to be least understood and appreciated. Chances are, most of us don't really think much about the ascension or about. Pentecost you might be sitting here this morning asking yourself you know why are we even talking about this why why are we bringing why does the front of my bulletin say Pentecost Sunday what's the big deal about that I didn't know I was a pentecostal church I thought we were at a presbyterian church what a kind of church are we a part of now when i say the word pentecost or pentecostal probably some things come to your mind many of you uh, those words carry in our culture at least some kind of baggage with them uh, what comes to mind when i say pentecostal Maybe you think of, of speaking in tongues, the sign gifts, some of the strange practices found among those who are in the more extreme fringes of the Pentecostal or Charismatic movement. Now, we must say there are some things that we can and should learn from our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, uh, not the least of which is having, even if theirs is somewhat misguided, I think we need to learn to have a robust view of the person and work of the Holy Spirit in us the presbyterians we have a tendency to want to shy away from that kind of a thing uh well john calvin didn't shy away from teaching about the holy spirit some some have called him the theologian of the holy spirit that the holy spirit is prominent throughout his his writings um, and and the person and work of the holy spirit does not tend to be a strong suit in our circles i think that's to our detriment just like the word catholic i think we need to steal back the word pentecost are you a catholic christian Yes. Are you a Roman Catholic Christian? No. Catholic means there's one church of Christ, of God, on this earth, and you are part of it. It's what we confess in the Apostles' Creed. Well, are you a Pentecostal Christian? Trick question. Really, you we are. We'd better be in the best sense, the most biblical sense of that word, not in the sense that we typically think of it. So we are are Catholic Pentecostal Presbyterians. I don't want to put that on our ad in the paper. People might get confused. But but that's what we should be uh, unashamed to say that we are. Uh, The great Puritan theologian John Owen writes the following about Pentecost. He says, The great privilege of the Gospel age, which would make the New Testament church more glorious than that of the old, was the wonderful pouring out of the promised Holy Spirit on all believers. What makes us, What what is our privilege, one of them, as New Testament believers in Christ in the gospel age, it's that outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all believers, on all flesh. Now that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, when did it happen? It happened in the text we're looking at this morning, on the, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so that great privilege of living in the gospel age is ours. The ongoing benefits of having received that outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church, that benefit is yours. And mine. it's ours in the church today, not just the first century church in the apostolic times. We should make the effort, I think, which is what we're trying to do this morning, to better understand and appreciate these things. They're much more important than we tend to give them credit for and tend to think about them. I believe it was John Owen who said that God God gave us two great gifts. The first one jumps right to mind. He gave us his son. What was the second? He gave us his son and his spirit. And we don't tend to think about how great of a gift that 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 he is, and that outpouring of God's Spirit is as well. So our text is obviously a long one. We can't spend all the time it would take to go through it bit by bit. So we're going to be looking at something of an overview of Acts chapter 2 this morning, and we hope to look at the entire chapter, at least to get the context of what Pentecost is about. And we're going to look at what I'm calling the ABCs of Pentecost. The ABCs of Pentecost. The first one is the Advent. That's the A in ABCs, the advent or coming of Pentecost in verses 1 through 13. Secondly, we're going to see from our text the background, that's the B, the background of Pentecost, uh, and that's found in verses 14 through 21. And then lastly, Lord willing, we're going to see the consequences or results of Pentecost in the rest of the chapter. So the first thing, probably the thing that jumps off the page at you when, when you heard it read and when you read it, is the advent or coming of Pentecost, you might recall back in the first chapter of the book of Acts in verses four to five, the Lord Jesus, after his resurrection, before his ascension, he gave the disciples a instructions or a command. Uh, he said in verses four to five, Luke says, And while staying with them before he ascended, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. But it says, But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's sending them forth, but before they go forth, they have to wait. And they have to wait for the promise of God, which was being baptized with the Holy Spirit while they were there. Well, that's what happens in the very next chapter in, in verses 1 through 13 of Acts 2. And in verses 1 through 4 of our text, this is what Luke says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They hadn't left, right? And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire. That wasn't actual fire, right? Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there was a sound inside the house like a mighty rushing wind. It probably sounded like a storm. You ever hear a wind outside that made you, you know, batten down the hatches, you know? A little wind's one thing, but sometimes you get those winds that, you know, knock trees down, knock the basketball hoops down, all those kinds of things. That's the kind of wind that was going on here, uh, the sound of it anyway, in, in our text. Uh, and verse 2 says that, what, is, what does verse 2 tell us the source of that sound was? From heaven. It wasn't an actual wind or actual fire, but it was a sound of wind from heaven. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. The sound was like that of a strong wind, kind of like a storm. And you know for the rest of the, of the text, the sound was so loud it grew it drew a crowd. People came to the house to see what was going on. Because they could hear it too. It wasn't the sound wasn't restrained to just the people inside the house. Now, what did the sound of a mighty rushing wind, what did that sound symbolize? It symbolized the presence of the Holy Spirit. The same Greek word you might know uh, that can be used for wind and breath and spirit is all the same word, the word pneuma. We get the word like a pneumatic drill. What's a pneumatic drill? It's a, it's a drill or a, or a power tool that runs on air. Well, pneuma can be, can translated, be translated wind or breath or spirit. Uh, the same holds true ironically enough in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament. The word "ruach means wind or spirit or breath. It can be used as either any of those words, and you have to figure out which one is intended by the context uh, Not only that, but there 's a lot of overlap between those those terms kind of irony being used in in the text in in John chapter three verses five through eight. Jesus uses them in a, interchangeably for different words, the same word for different ideas he says. And John uh, 3, 5 through 8, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, same, same Greek word, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit, same word, is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, same word, pneuma, the same, the, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So that you can see that there's a lot of overlap and and play in that word. Now, the Lord Jesus uses the idea of a wind blowing as an analogy of the work of the Holy Spirit in that chapter in John's Gospel. And so that is also what is symbolized here by that sound of a mighty rushing wind in Acts chapter 2 also. Now, the sound of a powerful wind in the house was the symbol of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Not only that, but Peter goes on to say it later in the chapter, in the next section we're going to look at, that the sound of the mighty rushing wind also symbolized the uh, and revealed that Pentecost was nothing less than the fulfillment of that prophecy in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. What was promised in Joel 2? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God pouring out His Spirit upon all flesh now at verse 3 of our text says that tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them what what comes to mind in your, what comes to your mind when, I, when, I, when you read tongues of fire what what, is, what what kind of imagery does fire suggest sometimes in, in the scripture fire very often represents the, the presence of God remember the burning bush back in the early chapters of Exodus Exodus 3 Moses walks up and sees this bush on fire but it's not being consumed well, why was he told to take off his sandals the the ground on which you're standing is holy ground why why is the ground holy it's just dirt dirt isn't even clean how is it holy well it's holy because god's presence was right there in a special way so he took his sandals off when the when the the children of israel were wandering in the wilderness what i was going to say what followed them what led them what accompanied them through those 40 years a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of what by night fire you know cloud gave them shade but also showed them when to go when to stop and the, but that fire that pillar of fire like this tongue of fire represented god's presence exodus 13 verses 21 to 22 says the lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud what what was the cloud meant to symbolize god's presence his special presence with his people the lord went before them in, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and in and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night sometimes they had to move at night well the pillar of fire showed them where to go the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people god's presence was with them always sounds kind of like the great commission doesn't it Well, those tongues of fire were kind of miniature pillars of fire resting not over a building or a tent of meeting or over the tabernacle or the temple, but over the disciples themselves. That's what was going on here. The presence leading and power of God was now resting upon them through the the Holy Spirit. This was that baptism with the Holy Spirit that Jesus talked about in Acts 1, verse 5. Well, in addition to those tongues of fire, there's another tongues that are mentioned in our text, The very next verse uh, says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and what happened. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, verse 4. They spoke in other tongues or languages. Now our text is very clear, I think, as to what is happening here. With all due respect to our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, we're told that this gift of tongues spoken of in Acts 2 was a very particular thing Verse 5 says, Devout men from every nation under heaven were dwelling in Jerusalem at that time for the feast. In other words, people who spoke a lot of different languages were in Jerusalem. Actual earthly languages from different places. That's the highlight, that's the emphasis of the text. Then three times, at least three times in verses 6 through 11, we are told that the apostles were speaking in other languages, plural The languages, what languages were it? The the, the languages of those devout people from every nation. Those are the languages that they were talking in and being heard talking in, not some mystical, heavenly, angelic language. That's not what Acts 2 is talking about at all. So verse 6 says that the crowd was bewildered. Why? Because each one was hearing them speak in some angelic babbling language. No, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And in verses 7 to 8, it says, They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking in our languages Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? They were shocked. You know, they, they hear this wind, they, they gather a, you know, a crowd. You know, if you're, some of you have traveled in foreign countries uh, where English is not the first, second, or third language and you're walking around and then you're you know you're on the street or in a market and you hear all of a sudden you hear english and what happens oh somebody's speaking my language i can actually talk to somebody so suddenly you thrust yourself upon some poor unsuspecting soul and immediately begin uh, con- you know, conversing with them well that's kind of what's happening here they hear the sound they come they you know the congregation is gathered out of all these people they hear the sound and they're all hearing their own language is being spoken by the apostles that's What was they were amazed by now Galileans as we saw I think even last week you know fairly or not kind of had the reputation of of being you know uneducated unsophisticated folks you know simple country folks that weren't exactly expected to be accomplished linguists you know they didn't walk up and see a bunch of Galileans and go oh of course everybody uses they're the UN translators they're so good everybody uses them for different languages now so for, so for them of all people these you know dumb fishermen so to speak to be speaking all these different languages uh, was something that was very remarkable to them now lastly as if to make the point verses 9 through 11 tells us a sampling of what those languages may have been or at least the uh, where they were from it says parthians and medes elamites and residents of mesopotamia judea and cappadocia pontus and asia phrygia and pamphylia Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome that's where the book of Acts ends the book of Rome it starts here people from Rome heard the gospel on the first day of Pentecost visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes in other words what's a proselyte to convert to Judaism so you had Jews who who were born and raised in it then you had proselytes that came into Judaism from other nations and languages and, and religions Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. It's remarkable. They didn't need the old UN earpiece that they all use sometimes during the UN with all the different languages. They, They heard them speaking in their own... All those different languages were being spoken by the apostles who had never once had one lesson, never once had the chance to study those lessons. It's quite the list of nations and languages. And so those tongues mentioned here in our text were actual human languages, and the disciples had never learned, but somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were speaking in those languages now if you 're familiar with the book of Genesis, this might feel like more of a Bible survey than an acts two survey. What does that remind you of? What comes to your mind when you think of all these different languages? the tower of Babylon, Genesis chapter eleven, Remember what the Lord did then? The Lord dispersed them into different nations over the face of the earth by breaking up, confusing. Their languages into different languages. Well, what happens here in Acts chapter 2? The exact opposite. So Pentecost, in a sense, marks the undoing or the reversal of Babel, so that the message of the gospel was now going to go out to all the nations and to go out with, to those nations with great power. Well, the second thing our text highlights for us this morning uh, is the background of, of Pentecost. In verses 14 to 21, Peter says that the roots of Pentecost, he tells us, they go back to the Old testament and he points out Joel chapter 2 verses 28 to 32 which he quotes at length but the background goes further than that doesn't it you might know even the word Pentecost uh, that was a, a, a feast day that was observed by the Jews in the, the Jewish religion in the Old Testament the feast of Pentecost was the feast of weeks and it was observed on the 50th day that's where you get the word from the 50th day after the Passover the feast of weeks was also known as the feast of first fruits The Feast of Weeks was to be a celebration of the beginning of the harvest. That's what the first fruits is. The very first part, you know, the best part, and the first part of the harvest came in. They would celebrate that with the Feast of Pentecost. So you can see, you know, when you think about the Old Testament's teaching on Pentecost, that Feast of Weeks, I think it becomes clear what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. You have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which Peter speaks of here in verses 14 to 21. You have the undoing of the reversal, you know, the reversal of the confusion of languages in the Tower of Babel. But here what you see by the witness of the apostles under the power of the Holy Spirit is Jesus brings in the first fruits of the harvest. That's what you see at the very end of the chapter. Three thousand were added uh, to the, to the church. Three thousand souls were saved. And then day, day, by day, people were being saved who were hearing the gospel. That's the, this is the first fruits of what Jesus prophesied back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where the gospel was to go to all the nations, even to the ends of the earth. Well, here in Acts chapter 2, we, we hear about, uh, verse 41 about the conversion of 3,000 souls, and where were they from? Every nation under heaven. Acts 2, verse 5. So here we have a foretaste of what Jesus was going to do through the apostles and through His Church from Pentecost to the end of the age, that means us. That means the Church now. It doesn't mean that we speak in other languages without having to study them. That's not the point. But the gospel is going out to all the nations now. Now it it had to get a jump start by this gift, by the Holy Spirit enabling that the apostles to speak in other languages to all those. You know, think about this. Pentecost happened. And this is going to sound dumb. Pentecost happened on Pentecost for a reason. Why? The feast was happening, and so because of that feast, people from all over the world had come to Jerusalem. If, if the outpouring of the Spirit had happened some other time, that would not have been the case. God had it happen there and then for, for a reason. The feast of first fruits in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of the greater harvest of first fruits of men, women, and children from every nation under heaven, every tribe and tongue and nation, who have believed and will come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation as His people go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit as His witnesses to the good news of the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 16, Peter points to a particular background of this event, and that was, he says verse, uh, uh he, t- he says in verse 16, this is, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so he quotes at length Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, and he says this. He says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass, this is where Peter ends the quotation, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. That's the point. The salvation of sinners through Christ by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit is is the point, and so Joel says that we're in the last days. Jesus says likewise. The last days are not some future thing; we're in the last days now. We're in the la- the end of the ages has come upon us now that Christ has come, and the Spirit has been poured out on Pentecost. So, what you know, we we might get kind of bogged down in some of those you know cataclysmic sounding you know things that he talks about these signs in the heavens and on the earth. But what's the point? What's the main point of the quotation from Joel? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days and the salvation of everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord because of that outpouring. Which leads us to the consequences of Pentecost, verses 22 to 47, the last part of our text, which we don't have time to look look at as much as I would like to do, but the consequences are results of Pentecost. You know, just as Joel foretold the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on all flesh, what did it result in? Prophesying. Now, we think of prophecy, and what do you think of? Telling the future, right? Now, it often included that, but prophecy, prophesying is is speaking forth the Word of God. If you want a, a, you know, a ten cent definition, the Reader's Digest definition or whatever, Merriam-Webster, prophesying, strictly speaking, is not about telling the future per se, that's a subset. It's speaking forth the Word of God, and speaking forth the Word of God with power. And not only that, but whoever would call upon the name of the Lord was going to be saved, which is what Joel says and what Peter quotes. And what do you see happening in the rest of the chapter? People calling on the Lord and being saved. That's what the chapter highlights towards the end. It's, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if this is ironic or what. Peter says, the thing you just heard, I'm paraphrasing, right? That's this that Joel talked about. And what else did Joel talk about? A whole bunch of people getting saved when they they heard the word of God being prophesied. And what do you see in Acts 2? You see a whole bunch of people, 3,000 souls being added to the church that day and throughout the rest of the chapter as well. You see the apostle Peter, what's he doing? He preaches the first Christian sermon here in Acts 2 as a result of what? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And what happens? He preaches to that crowd in Jerusalem. He preaches what? The death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ... He shows from the Old Testament, a whole bunch of different Old Testament quotations, that Jesus is the Christ. The one they crucified, guess what? He's not dead. God raised him from the grave, he seated him in his right hand, and he's even responsible for this pouring out of the Holy Spirit that you just heard. He, Jesus did that. That's the point. He's not dead, he's he's at work right now. He's reigning over all things, pouring out his Spirit It says there in verse 33, he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that's the ascension, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, what? He, who's he? Jesus. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus is at work right now. What was the result? It says that those people, verse 37, in the crowd, many of them were, quote, cut to the heart and said to Peter and the others, Brothers, what shall we do? In other words, what's the application? We, we get your point now. We understand Jesus is still alive; He's reigning over all things even now that He's 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 risen and ascended. What do we do? What shall we do? Has the gospel of Christ led you to ask the same question? Has the preaching of God's word ever led you? I hope it has to ask yourself and even ask the preacher. What do we do? What's What's the What's the application? What are we supposed to do? It's the same question that the Philippian jailer asked. Uh, later on in the book of Acts when it says, what, sirs?" Acts 16.30, he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? How do I call on the name of the Lord? What do I have to do to be saved? Now, the same question was asked by that crowd in Acts 2. Now, I have to say, much of what passes for gospel preaching in our day and maybe in every day would never seem to suggest such a question at all. And is not designed to convict men of their sin so that as, as Acts says, they're cut to the heart to even ask that kind of a question. And we have to question if such preaching is designed just to entertain or is it designed to point to Christ and salvation in His name. What was Peter's answer? You might say to yourself, oh, that's not what you're supposed to say, Peter. Peter, Peter flunked evangelism class that we would have had it. He says, repent and what? Be baptized. Oh no, baptismal forgiveness and and you know regeneration. No, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to go into why he says what he says and unpack everything he says, but but do you have to repent to be saved? Yes. Repenting is turning from your sin and turning to God through faith in Christ. It, you can't go north and south at the same time. Well, you can't be going towards sin and toward going towards Christ at the same time. It's repenting and turning to Christ by faith, and being baptized in the name of Christ implies faith, and it's what He commands us to do. To anybody who comes to Christ as a, as a convert in Him, is to baptize them for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what salvation is about. Are your sins forgiven? When when the crowd said, "What do we have to? Sir, what do we do?" What and as the jailer said, "What do we have to do to be? What do I have to do to be saved?" That's what he's talking about. How do I receive the forgiveness of sins? And notice what else it says. For the forgiveness of your sins, verse 38, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's still being poured out on all flesh and indwelling those who come to faith in Christ. And even, he's the one that draws them to faith in the first place. Did everybody believe in Acts 2? Was Jesus just the greatest, or Peter rather, just the greatest preacher in the history of humanity? And he just knew just the right words to say, no, everybody didn't believe, but many did. Says Luke says, there were added that day about 3,000 souls, verse 41. That's the first fruits. That's the Pentecost of Pentecost. It's the first fruits of Pentecost. And there is surely much more of that great harvest to come. So Pentecost marks, as we we heard that quote from Owen earlier in the sermon, a monumental and enduring change, enduring change even now in, in the church, a change which was promised and prophesied all the way back, in the Old Testament, and that change marked the beginning of the triumphant march of the gospel of Christ through his church as it spread from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. It's still doing that now. Jesus Christ is still conquering his enemies through his gospel now. The gospel is still spreading the same way, maybe not with the you know the gift of different languages, but the gospel is, gospel is still spreading the same way in our day today. And we do well to remind ourselves of the truth and ongoing reality of the gift of Pentecost to us as well. So you and I should want to be Pentecostal in the best, most biblical sense of that term. We should want to be characterized by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We should not be embarrassed to say that it's our prayer that we might, as Rob prayed earlier today, that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit as individual believers and as, and as a church. And what does that mean according to the book of Acts? It means a spirit-empowered witness to the world around us. It means other things, too. He's the spirit of holiness. He, he brings sancti- He's our sanctifier, right? He, he brings the gifts that Christ has won for us and imparts them to us. Now, you and I would be right to be afraid to go forth with the gospel of Christ if we were to do so alone and under nothing but our own power. Too often I think this way, maybe you do, too, that's kind of how we think we're doing it. And that's why we're afraid to do it. That's why, at least one of the reasons we're often afraid to do it. Um, but, you know, we don't go alone. Do you go alone? Do we go alone with the gospel? No. Christ says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. Do we not, you know, do we go under our own power? What's the point of Jesus saying he's with you always, even to the end of the age? It's the fact that he's going to be with you by the work of his Holy Spirit and the disciples will be made. We go with the power of the Holy Spirit who works through the word of God so that it never returns void, as Isaiah 55, says. And what's the result of such spirit-empowered witness for Christ? What will the full harvest of that first fruits we looked at in our text look like? You know, We often think, what does Jesus say? Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Why? Because the harvest is great, and the workers are what? Few. The harvest is big. We think the harvest, I think sometimes the harvest is small because we don't see much. We sow and sow and sow and we don't get to see sometimes the fruit of it. Revelation 7 verses 9 to 10 gives us the full harvest that is pictured in this Pentecostal first fruits of that great salvation in Acts chapter 2. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. We God can, but we can't number. No one can number and where where are they from? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That's not an accident. Standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed in white robes, their sins are forgiven, they are cleansed in Him and accepted in Him in Him as righteous, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, this is Palm Palm Sunday in heaven. And crying out with a loud voice saying what? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, you and I, when you read Acts 2, when I read Acts 2 and I say, and I, I read 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. I mean, 3,000 converts came to Christ, were baptized, given the gift of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. And then it says after that, you know, verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. We read that and we're like, wow. I'd take a tenth of that over a 10-year period. You know, give us 300 converts and I'll be doing backflips and hurting myself and be in the hospital next to Bill in a different bed. Um, You know, but look at, Jesus is doing something, and his harvest is not going to be small. What he's doing through his Holy Spirit by the work of his gospel, through people like you and me, you know, nobody special, but his Holy Spirit working through his church, uh... That's going to be the result. That's the end. That's the full harvest that Pentecost gives just a little taste of from every nation, tongue, and tribe, and people, and language before the throne. And, and, and all those people, because of Christ's grace, the grace of God in Christ, get to stand before God and before the, the Lamb and before the throne of God. And we get the crowd. Salvation belongs to what? Our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, salvation does belong to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf, his, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his pouring out the gift of the Holy Spirit upon his church, upon all flesh. And we ask that you would give us grace to understand all these things better and better. Help us understand your great love for us, that you would send your Son to live and die in our place. That the life that we failed to live and the death that we deserve for failing to live that perfect life, that you raised him from the grave on the third day for our justification, that you raised him up and seated him at your right hand where he even now rules over all things. We don't sometimes feel like he's ruling over all things. Give us the eyes to see. Give us the eyes of faith to see Jesus reigning at your right hand and gathering and defending his church, even us, and working through us by his word and spirit to to make his enemies its footstool and bring many to salvation in him. And give us the eyes of faith to see the, the outpouring of your Holy Spirit that we might have confidence and not be ashamed of the gospel, but know that your gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Lord, forgive us for our timidness. We ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us. Fill us with your spirit. Make us your witnesses. Give us grace to testify to Jesus Christ to our neighbors and family and friends. And we ask by your grace that you would save many, that many of our loved ones, our family members, our friends, our co-workers and neighbors might be among that crowd that's too big for us to possibly number and that they might get to stand before your throne and even before the Lamb saying, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who's on the throne. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.